Welcome to Well-Designed Lives with Brad Wiesner, our weekly podcast that brings you interesting people and deep conversations about all things beauty and about how others curate a well-designed life. Welcome back, our esteemed followers. Today is our part two of our conversation with Doug Smith, and I'll keep it short. But here is where things get even more compelling. We continue his amazing story and revealing insights as his life continues. His humility, growing compassion, his self-reflection really become more impressive and take us to where he is today. I think, like me, you'll be amazed. Here again is Doug. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome, welcome to episode two with Doug Smith. And if you have not, um, I, I strongly recommend if you hear episode one first, it's going to really lay a lot of groundwork for some cool conversations I think we're about to have today. And I'm, I'm very excited to have Doug back again. So, Doug, thank you very much for being here again. Thank you. I, I know it's a thing to set up time and, and microphones and all this weird technology, so I, I appreciate you being available for, for some more, for some more Doug Smith. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, we had last left off on what I thought was very fascinating is um, Doug's story about some personal failure and, and some things that, that went down, uh, fall from grace kind of story, which is fascinating. And I, I think how we pick ourselves back up again is, is where we left off and, and the beauty of being able to reinvent or the beauty to be a phoenix that rises from the ashes. And, and in those kinds of stories, uh, Doug and I were talking about how, how amazing our fellow humans can be, uh, just people that you don't really know sit right next to you and they hear your story they don't need to hear any more of it. They're here with you now. They want to know you now because they can hear that you're different now. And <clears throat> as we were talking, it, it there's almost a freshness with it, the reinvention, you know, that, that I think is palpable. I think people can feel, you know. So um, how did it feel to you, you know, coming through this, getting sort of, you know, after re-engaging re uh, with society again, your parents and your divorce and, and everything, and you're sort of waking up, right? How, how would you describe that? How would you, how did it feel? It, it felt like the, the, all the uh, costumes we put on, all the roles we play, all the scripts, we continue to manifest that all of those things no longer became important. And what was really important is uh, relating to people person to person. And I found that the more I got into working with the dying, uh, the more that theme was reinforced that with the dying, everything drops away except for the most important parts. Of I was ourselves. just going to say, when we're dying, we drop the facade. Yeah, yes. And uh, to be with people during those times when they've dropped all of that stuff is so rewarding 
uh, people outside of hospice have this impression that, you know, how can you do that kind of work? Isn't that exhausting? You know, certainly with your education, you can find something better to do than that. Uh, but when you see or with people during those moments, that it's, it's not, your energy is not depleted. Uh, you're re-energized. You, you find out what's really important in life. And what's really important in life uh, is this person-to-person -person interaction. It's meeting people where they truly are with their feelings, their thoughts, their behaviors, the, the core uh, of who they are. And it, it, it's just amazing. When you ask people, you know, why are you in hospice? It's not for the salaries. It's not for fancy offices. It's not, not for any of that stuff. It, it's for being in reality and not messing around with reality, not trying to hide things from others, but being who we not only are, but who we were meant to be real. Which, right? I mean, that's huge right there. Not only unvarnished. Yes, but, but blossoming the but blossoming in death in dying, yes. blossoming the real you. Yes, yes. It's just that idea that that the, the the purest within us almost comes alive, you know, through dying. It was one of my questions for you, Doug. Which I always ask me, where do you find beauty? And one of my big questions lately is: Is there beauty in grieving? You know, can we find beauty in trauma? And, and certainly, is there beauty in dying, you know? And I was reading through your, your things about your, your interest in, in dignity you know, with, with death. And um, I think we just hit on it, man. I think that's really good that we're our most unvarnished, which is one thing. Okay, the mask comes off, the facade comes off. But concurrently, it's like there's a, a blossoming of, of the real person. Yes. Did, yes. I, did I catch that right? Do you yes, very much so. And... I mean, I could tell all these stories of what happens, how people are transformed in those final weeks. But for me, the person that most cemented within me the value of opening ourselves up and being vulnerable and being real uh, was my uh, daughter, Marin, who uh, I had lost my first daughter. She had only lived uh, seven weeks. but my second child, Marin, uh, was born with a disease called neurofibromatosis, which is sometimes called the elephant man disease. Have you oh. seen that play or that movie? Sure. It's characterized by huge tumors and internally, externally, multiple handicaps and in modern day frequent corrective surgeries and uh, my daughter Marin had her first surgery to remove a tumor when she was only three years old. Mm -hmm. And it was a tumor that was growing over her right eye. And she had all these surgeries, she had to have a leg removed and had to eventually have a, a quarter of her skull removed. And yet in the midst of all of that, this person was the most loving, the most caring, the most real, authentic person I could imagine, and beautiful person with the real sense of beauty. 
which mm. is not an outward appearance of things. Uh, you know, it, it's something that can come through even if this person has huge tumors. And I'd seen that in other hospice patients as well. In fact, I remember this one patient named Annette, and she had had a cancer that had actually literally eaten away at her face. You could see some of the bones oh, sticking gosh. out of her face. And Incredible. I went into her room once and she said something like this. She said, Doug, everybody that comes into my room and they can't hide it, I see fear in their eyes. And she said, I did not experience fear until I saw it in the eyes of others. And she said, people come in and they're repulsed by what they see. But I, and this is Annette is saying this, I yes. am who I, I have always been. And I've always been a beautiful mm -hmm. person. Mm -hmm. And and that to me, I mean, with the theme that you have, that, that's, that's beauty. It, it's not related to mm -hmm. what we visually see or what our senses might perceive, but what our soul perceives, what we internally perceive in sure. ourselves and in others. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. I, I can only hope to that enlightened. I can only hope to be that pure and that open. I, I can only hope to be that unvarnished, you know? Yeah, when we Crazy. can, when that happens to us, when we're dying, <laughs> yeah. and to, to have that ability to, what was the, what is, um, what is essential is invisible to the eye, what it, from that, uh, the book, The Prince, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but as we're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing, I think I have something in my own life going on that uh, in, in my search for my personal growth, my, my search for being unvarnished and, and being in the moment, which comes through many, many things. Um, my listeners probably by now know that I'm a recovering alcoholic. And so I'm, I'm part of a, a big program that, that has been extraordinarily helpful to me. And, and uh, in getting sober, uh, moving through this program has transformed my life in of itself. And, and then therapy and then personal growth and and my church and my faith and uh, and this this conglomerate of things as I move further towards um gosh what do you call it just sort of I don't know self-cleansing you know just trying to be to the point where it's just in, in our discussion today I'm, I'm saying to myself on my deathbed I want to be as as I as my mask falls away. I hope there's no mask. As as the facade falls down, I hope there's no facade. As I blossom inside to the real me, I hope I've already done yes. that. I yes. I want to be that person in front of death as far as it can be, starting today. You know what I? I don't know if that made sense, but it it, it very much makes sense. And I think from my uh, exposure to people that have. Um, struggled with the alcoholism or drug abuse it, it is a type of death and a very real grieving of a loss kind of mm -hmm. situation mm -hmm. in fact um back when i was starting to do a lot of workshops on grief hazelton hired me to do workshops for their residential program and i said you know i haven't had any courses and Doug, you're killing me. You're killing me. Yeah. <laughs> Are we going to have a third episode just on well, that? Oh my God. But, but just okay. Uh, the, what, what people go through in 
the the loss involved in uh, in recovering and just yes. losing that uh, drug that helped you to exist in the world to have to face that loss to go into a program well and to face and, and to face and the, all the all the stuff you've created yeah, right that's yeah. just what i was going to say it's, all yeah. of, all of the false you that you were that version of you the drug infested the alcohol infused what we what we needed i mean it was our crutch and 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 for good or for bad it was mostly bad the uh yeah, well, you, you grieve that loss of that whole yes. life, that whole, uh, as artificial as it was, as deceptive and, and mean and cruel and hurtful and all the things that it is, it was you. And you're standing there naked in front of a, a, a fresh future. It's real easy to just kind of get back into the comfort of that guy. Yes. And you, yes. Know, and you know you can't. And, and so it's that move. You know, for those of us that have gone through that, and again, to our listeners, I hope you listened to episode one because Doug shared his own version of that kind of thing. For those of us that can stand fresh in the ashes and say, I feel like this is a phoenix happening here. I think it's, I'm, we're very great. I'm very grateful, very grateful to have gone through that experience. So, wow. Okay. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is we skipped over it just a little bit is is uh, Doug's history, uh, you know, Doug Doug's um Several degrees, several master's degrees, very educated in, in theology, became a priest. Uh, please listen to episode one. But as we were talking the time that you were in the mental institution, which was like cuckoo's nest, from there, the brokerage and, and stockbroker stuff that happened, we launched right into your interest in your work in hospice. And yes. I think I wanted to kind of go back to that and, and hear... I think I, I think I can infer what might have drawn you to that that way. But what what do you? How would you describe your um, moth to a flame? What, what drew you to hospice? A, a, a couple things. Um, one, one was the personal experiences with with death, and to realize that that can be a place where uh, we can meet person to person. But what I did initially in trying to get a job in hospice was that uh, hospice had always advertised themselves as being holistic. I, in studying hospice, I saw that the average nurse to patient ratio was one ter nurse per six patients. The average social worker mm. ratio was one social worker to 15 patients. And then it was one chaplain to 60 patients. And I thought that's, you know, there's, that's not holistic. <laughs> that, that's heavily weighted on the physical yeah. Yeah. and the, the medical. And so my first job was that I, I invented a job. I said, I want to come in and make hospice truly um, holistic. And I uh, want to have the chaplain as being the case manager rather than the nurse and I want to have mm -hmm. the I want to have at interdisciplinary team meetings I want to have people be able to the team to be able everyone to be able to speak freely and openly and for just as much time so that we're looking not just at that physical person and this relates to what we were talking about it's we're not just our physicality. <laughs> we've got emotions, we've got feelings, we've got beliefs, we've got values, we've got philosophies. And 
that's what's beautiful about hospice is doing that. I, I still have my preconceived notions about all of it, and that's unfortunate. I, I, I want to sit here and be converted into the beauty of that kind of work. I, I still think I have some fear. I don't know why, but um, I, I was about to say, I'm, I'm not sure that I, have, I would have the stamina to do that kind of work, and yet... It, it is rewarding. If you look at the statistics of job retention, hospice has got one of the highest retention rates of employees. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, people are obviously getting fed. Yes. The staff. Uh, yeah. yeah. So now, now it, I get a little confused on your timeline. God, we're yes. still introducing you. Um, because as you started to work in hospice, I think you were continuing studies. You were becoming more learned. Your, you become, your prowess in, in, in all of your work, you became quite, quite educated. You, you just continue, I think, to pursue literary and, and educational pursuits yes. And, and, yes. And, and concurrently speaking around the world, giving a seminar here, consulting there on, on not just one straightforward, but the, the, the panoply or the, the kaleidoscope of grief here or hospice there or, you know, dignity. Yes, well, the, what you just expressed with yourself that you're saying that you, you know, you would have some fears or hesitancies in doing that kind of work. That that feeling was present in all the healthcare professions. I mean, I didn't in seminary, I didn't have a single, there wasn't a single course offered in working with the dying. Mm -hmm. Was the topic that didn't even come up. And as, yet as a priest who might give less yeah, rites. Yeah. And yet that's going to be the one thing you're going to be guaranteed to have to deal with as as a as a priest. And likewise with social workers and with doctors, even, you know, it's, it's all the education was on healing and not in working with people as they're dying, not in well, what do we do when people can't be healed? Mm -hmm. What do we do when we can't fix the problem? And same thing with social workers. They were all oriented towards fixing stuff. Well, what if you can't fix it? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so let me I, interrupt I was you. educating everybody. everybody. Well, let me, let me yeah. just interrupt right there. Yeah. What, what do you do? Um, what, what do we do uh, when we can't? I think what we do, and we've kind of been talking about this in both of these podcasts, is that we get down to the level of just being person to person with people. And I say, I begin all my workshops by saying what the dying want from me, what the grieving want from me has nothing to do with any of my education. It has nothing to do with any of the books I've written. Mm -hmm. All people want from me is for me to sit next to them and listen and not run away. Just sit there and listen. And so my workshops are basically on how do we listen? <laughs> how, do we, how do we sit down and not run away? So, so I, I, I want to um, parse this out because I have a personal fascination with grieving and loss. It, someone who's grieving wants someone to listen, sure, and, and to sit there and, and be, just be. 
Absolutely, yes. And don't go away, and and don't run away. Just you know, uh, yes, I agree. Um, I I guess I, I I I'm leaning towards the idea also, of of something not passive but more active. Um, maybe the the action of acceptance and and how how it does in your opinion, in your work, in your history, your experience, your studies, does does the phenomena of acceptance come into play with grieving or is there a different miasma that occurs in 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 some way acceptance of the death itself or acceptance of the person acceptance of death well i think i'm framing it and i mean this may not be a good way to frame it i'm I'm going to say loss right okay Uh, yes that 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 you and i both grieved that period in our lives where we had fall from grace or that someone's dying and they're grieving the the loss of of themselves, really. Yes. So I'm going to use the word loss, right? And and yes. so in 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 grief, facing loss or having experienced loss, my pets is one of my worst. Um, yes. Does does the phenomena of acceptance really come in as much as maybe something else? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I I um, I'm often asked the question, you know, how long does it take? Right for people to recover, you know, and it's and you know that answer, right? I, can I? Can you yeah, just tell me now? Yeah, the answer is, it, you never, <laughs> you'll never recover. Uh, it's um, it's just like with the, it's always a part of you, just like the the journey you take in alcoholism. I'm, I'm even though I'm not using, I'm still the alcoholic. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's, and the same thing with the loss, the loss is not going to be erased. And I distinguish between curing and healing. Right. And that's good. Curing is an objective or physical elimination of a problem. And I want curing Doug. Yeah, but we can't. <laughs> and every can't time they tell that. me you don't really get cured, you can, you can yeah, make but it But you better. can experience you can healing is more of that subjective yeah. qualitative change. Yeah. And that happens, I think, when we know that we're not alone. And what makes loss so terrible is this feeling of loneliness, mm-hmm. the feeling that I'm I'm no longer supported by this person or this pet or this substance. Mm-hmm. But um, once somebody knows that they're not alone, that it's once again, that listening, that there's somebody who's going to hold my hand while I travel this journey. It might not be the person I'd lost, but somebody else is willing to do that with me or someone else is not willing to run away. I have this one client who is angry. She was dying in a hospital. She was angry at everybody that came into her room. Mm -hmm. And she told everybody about it. If, if you were a nurse, she'd say, you know, if you were doing your job, I wouldn't be in this bed. I don't yeah. like you get out of my room. Right. Social worker would come in. You're yep. wasting my time. Mm-hmm. Would you go waste somebody else's time? I don't like you. Get a chaplain right. would come in. You're living in a world of illusion. Would you grow up? I don't like you get out of my room. She'd dump on everybody. Yep. Um, the typical response to that is to say this person has got anger mm-hmm. and we need to work on that anger. Mm-hmm. I had a social worker that put this as her care plan. My role is to be yelled at. Yeah. Yep. That was the best care plan. 
that was the best care plan. Strangely, I understand that. Um, hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think that's what we all want from people. Even <clears throat> if we're not dying, <laughs> we, we want to be accepted for who we are. Well, well what, what you were saying a second ago about, you know, being supported or that there's somebody there that you're not alone. And I thought, you know, we can gloss over it, right? I mean, when somebody passes away and the family is really grieving, we show up at a funeral. So we all say, I'm here. I'm going to support you. Maybe you bring a pan of lasagna over to the family, right? Yes. You, you're there. It's very different three weeks later to sit there yes. in the sitting room, holding hands quietly, that you're there in a very different way. You're there in a superhuman, super intimate support. It just seems to transmit and, and maybe get yelled at and, and yes. sit there and say, that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Keep yelling. Yes. You can yell at yes. me. It's right. I understand. <laughs> Yes. I get it. I get it. I mean, you know, even with, believe it or not, you know, this relates to my interior design career where, you know, oh my God. So I believe very firmly what I do is bring beauty to people's lives. And I do that mostly through things, um, which I, I agree, it does not bring us, you know, internal fulfillment. But I do believe that when you surround yourself with beauty, it creates beauty around you. And I mean beauty through your children and your beautiful furnishings and your spiritual life and the chandelier and your Christian Dior wardrobe and, and your volunteer work and, and, your, and your car and your life and your work and your employees. And, and everything that we do in our lives should be beautiful. Church should be beautiful. Music in your home should be beautiful. Entertaining should be beautiful. Your relationships, all of it. And often, people, being people, we're all human beings. We're very messy. I have clients that maybe have something unfulfilled or that there is a loss that's not been reconciled. And I know that I fill an emotional void. I can fill an emotional void for my clients. In a strange way, being your interior decorator, I don't just come in and recommend mauve paint. I... I have to sit with my clients. I have to know where they find beauty before I can do anything. And the time and the interviews and the sitting and the programming and the intake and the, and I, I could be at lunch with a client and she's talking about her brother, 1983, he died of AIDS and she's crying. And that loss has never really been. And I know that at that lunch table, I've been given something very personal, very important that, that loss needs to be filled. And somehow, how can I contribute? How can her interior design or a way of living or, or to have a beautiful closet that for that moment she's in? I don't know. But how do we do our best to bring beauty and fill an emotional void where we can? And sometimes that means getting yelled at. And I won't tolerate it for my staff, but I will tolerate it when it's directed at me because most often I can tell it's not really towards me and, and that's okay. I, I'm a big boy. I can take it. We had a couple and I'm going to, I think I'm going to get emotional and I don't want to, um, hmm, I already feel it. So we had a couple in Maryland who hired us to do a great big 10,000 square foot Georgian home. And immediately they treated us like family. It doesn't matter. Uh, that doesn't matter. So anyway, and and basically this project became real big, real fast. And it was basically dismantling the inside of the house 
not really completely, and we didn't do the kitchen, but really we took down door frames. We took and, and, and redid their lives. I mean, exactly how they paid the bills, where, on what desk, how, oh. you know. It, it, I was allowed to touch the artwork. Nobody was allowed to touch this man's artwork. And he allowed me to rearrange it all over the house. And I felt love from them. And I loved them. They treated us like family. And I, I treated their home like it was my own home. I have a high degree of ownership anyway. And I'll try to make this quick. The degree of intimacy that we can have with clients, which is why it's also confidential, is um, I learned a third of the way into this project, she shared with me that she had lung cancer. And I just started crying on the spot. And that's not who I want to be, but I lost it. And, and I felt frail and she gave me a huge hug and, you know, we move on. It's going to be okay. And I was ever more dedicated to bring beauty to their world. And I started to slowly realize, I think that's what we're doing here. And so in the deconstruction of the home, packing up stuff and whatever, they really left everything to us. I mean, down to nail polish, right? So my staff is packing up the bedroom, his shoes, his suits, her dresses. But when it came to the drawers of, of intimate things, I packed that up. No one's mm. going no to touch it but me. And I carefully took wow. lingerie and, and ladies' things and packed them away. Um, and then when things were done and we had the beautiful closet and the velvet-lined drawers and stuff, I unpacked those things and made it beautiful like a department store um, because it was that intimate. And, oh, God. So anyway, <clears throat> they were very special people to me. And... Um, I have not too long ago learned that she passed away and um, I hadn't seen them in, in a while. So I, I haven't reached out or anything, but um, just the times where she would call my office and it was always around three or three thirty, and just be so upset on the phone and it would always devolve into yelling. And my, I would counsel my staff that this is chemotherapy this is someone who's just sick and angry, and we're we're gonna we're gonna be okay with that. She can yell, let her yell. And there were times where they're like, "Brad, you you have to take the call today. I I just can't handle it." And I would, and most all the time we would let her yell, and because it wasn't at us, because tomorrow we go over yes. and we're treated like gold. I mean, we were treated like gold. Um, anything we needed, anything. Outside of, yeah. uh, so there were sometimes, once in a while, I would be on the phone with her, it's about 45 minutes now, and I would say, okay, that's enough, I want to, I, I want to say something, I want you to calm down, and I don't want to hear you say these things about your husband, because that's not true, he loves you dearly, and you know that, and our project is creating such beauty, you're already, you know, look at what you have, and, and, and it was calming, and it was, I'm with you, and uh, it was intimate. And um, I cherish those phone calls as, as, um, as disruptive as they were to the daily workflow of my business. Um, I now look back and I cherish those phone calls with her. It was... I, I can, I'm hearing what you're saying in it. And I look at that relationship and what you do as being very similar to the relationship between a counselor and a patient that yeah. a designer is not somebody that says, here's a 
a nice looking lamp and here's a nice looking couch, but it's the design. And the design is something that transcends the, the lamp and the couch. It's the, to- you're trying to very much so. express, express what you are to and express, have that other person express who they are and somehow design something that makes the two meet. And that's the beautiful thing. That's yeah. the design, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I, d- I don't come in and fluff pillows, you know, and, and the fear is, is to let a designer come into my home. He's going to tell me that it should all be purple. And I hate yes. purple. <laughs> and it couldn't be further from the truth, right? I, if, if you're good at what you do, you, you create the environment that is them. You just yes. do it beautifully. And, yes. and I'm, I'm flattered of all the times that I've been told, oh my God, how did he capture you guys? This feels like you, right. guys, you know? Right. So to your point, um, it is very, it is very psychological. You know, we're, I'm, I'm a mediator. Um, oh yeah, it's a lot. It's just a lot to help people it, see. And I, I think, you know, where each one of us is coming from is very parallel. I, mm-hmm. When, when you're working with a dying, their, their house, their being is in shambles and it needs to be redesigned. Yes. And yes, yes. That's crazy. I knew when we first started 15 minutes into episode one, I'm like, we have so much in common. This is just crazy. Parallel, you know, you could talk about parallel experiences. We both moved a lot when we were kids. There's a lot we have in common, but I think most deeply there's a, a parallel intention, yes. intention. This, as I was reading through all of your things, I was really just impressed. And I thought, um, th- there's a lot of intention here and, uh, what a beautiful story you have, right? I mean, just from childhood and everything. I just, when you line it all up, Doug, you know, aren't we lucky? Yes. Aren't we lucky that yes. we, that we have these lives that bring us to where we are? Um, okay. So, I didn't get what I needed. I needed the answer of how to how to cure grief, right? How to fix it. There's a pill I can take, or there's something that makes grief go away, right? I know you're holding out. No, on me. no, no such thing. <laughs> yeah. No such thing. Mm-hmm. No. So um, we have uh, here at my church here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We have St. James Episcopal where I go, and there are several workshops coming up on loss and grief and things like that. There are some oh. really well well-meaning, well-studied individuals who uh, present on this stuff. So I'm looking forward to attending those and, you know, learning more about uh, dealing with grief and loss. And um, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you know, I I know some of my listeners will know that I am a CASA. I'm a court-appointed special advocate. Oh, okay. Do you know what that is? Yes. Great. And so... Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's an advocate for the child who's in the child care system. Uh, once right. a child's been removed from a home, youth agency services and caseworkers and lawyers and everybody gets involved. And the court has said we really want one person to sort of you know summarize this and 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 advocate strictly just for the child and be a volunteer, answer only to the court, and have no other agenda. <laughs> and so we get trained a lot, you know, in in all things around that. One of the most fascinating, you become a mandated reporter, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but one of the things that's most fascinating to me was the study of trauma. And I, I know you're going to know about this, but the, the idea that trauma in, in our lives and, and perhaps even in our young lives um, is so 
informative isn't even the strong enough word. It literally writes the computer code onto our genetics that can make us be X, Y, or Z. And it makes us perform in certain ways and it makes us behave in certain, and it's so predictive, right? But what was surprising is that they started to learn that in the physiological, in the biological ways, that trauma can actually affect us. And the ACEs quiz, A-C-E-S, I forget what it stands for, but it's about acute trauma where it's just a simple quiz. You, I don't know, one through 15. And it asks you to say yes or no. Were, were your parents ever divorced? Yes or no. Did you move more than seven times in your childhood? Yes or no. Did you witness drug abuse in your home? Yes or no. Were you sexually molested? Were you sexually abused? Did your parents uh, divorce? Did you witness um, your parents physically fighting? And, and all of this goes on and on and on. Um, if I recall, there's even a question of, you know, have you ever been addicted? But the point is, and, you know, they learned that everybody has two, three. We all have parents that have divorces. And, of course, the child's, this is focused for me around children, the child's resiliency comes into play here that if there's been some, some, some traumatic things that have happened, you can bounce back until you start to get to, like, five, six, or seven trauma score things that, you know, most people can't really bounce back from. And they start to be scarring emotionally, but they started to predict if you answer yes to question one, three, and four, you are 20% more likely to develop depression. If you answered yes to questions two, 14, and 20, you are 40% more likely to have colorectal issues. If you, like, it, it was crazy. Um, coronary uh, behavior, phys- physical, um, this this business of trauma is a big deal. And the more I learn about it, the more it could be prevented or greatly reduced. And, and, and how does our society become more trauma-informed? You know, where the police, there was, I, I don't know how many people saw this on, on social media, TikTok, whatever it was young african-american boy and and it sounds like he stole a bag of potato chips a small individual yes, I bag, saw that. Yes. and uh or a candy bar whatever it was and he stole something he should be apprehended he should be but oh my god was it three police officers this this seven-year-old kid maybe nine-year-old kid on the ground and uh you know if he did just shoot someone i i guess we'll get to that point but it looks on the surface like he stole a bag of potato chips and you're handcuffing him you're doing all the stuff and i'm i'm gonna now project probably falsehood but a young black boy saw his father in handcuffs how many times and his brother and now him of course why not right and it perpetuates and the trauma why traumatize i know he stole something i know it's not right but do we need to traumatize him Yes, yeah. Through this corrective process, which leads into many discussions about, you know, police apprehension, uh, booking, and, 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 and then, uh, you know, incarceration, and, and, and what do we do with, oh my gosh, that's a really big, but trauma, trauma can, trauma can regurgitate more trauma in a way that I think beauty creates beauty. Which path are we on? And so many people are in this trauma machine. How do we get them out of it? You know, so I'm, I'm big into that. That's, uh, 
Sorry, it was my little soapbox on that. No, it's a good soapbox to be on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So crazy. So uh, we'll have a little intermezzo course here. We'll cleanse our palates. Um, I hear you like fine wines. I very much do. I, we've, uh, I've got a huge wine refrigerator. In fact, we had to uh, re, we had to move a wall out to fit the wine refrigerator. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, being, yeah. being a recovering alcoholic, I don't drink anymore, but, yes. um, I, I was a food and beverage director of luxury hotels and hospitality. That's what I heard. Ritz Carlton. Yes. I say Ritz Carlton cause people know that, but I was also with some very fancy private resorts and things. But at one time, a hotel in Washington, DC, uh, I was in charge of the largest wine, the, all, the largest all American wine list on the East coast of the United States. And, what what restaurant was it? Well, it was called Chardonnay at the time. Oh, okay. Now you and I are of an age. We'll know this. Um, the burgeoning American cuisine scene was happening. Uh, Julia Child had taught us through the sixties and seventies, but now we had, you know, Jacques Pepin. We had um, some real superstars uh, come up, and I'm 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 not as recalling at the moment some of the California chefs, but. Um, Yannick Cam in Washington, D.C., Jean-Louis Paladin, and, and this food scene was coming out of nowhere, um, and I was part of it. And so my hotel, my food and beverage, our food and beverage, Chardonnay was seen as one of these vanguards of new American cuisine, oh, okay. and our chef was excellent. Um, it was just really, it was such a pretty European hotel. It was very fancy. Wow. John, John Singer Sargent paintings around and stuff, you know, chandeliers. Mm-hmm. But then it was this fresh American. We had just just left Nouvelle Cuisine, and the plates were even prettier than that. But anyway, so, but with the wines that we had, it was serious. It all got real serious. And uh, I, I knew the Mondavis. I, I knew the family at Iron Horse. Um, Wow. Mr. Fisher from Fisher Vineyards. I could go on and on. Gary uh-huh. Anderson, I'm dropping names. But the point is, um, when the winemakers would come to Washington, uh, perhaps to speak to Congress about uh, advocating for shipping their wines interstate and, and lots of issues, they would stay at our hotel, of course, because we we were the mecca for. Yes. So anyway, my point, all of that was just that I really learned a lot about wines and fine wine and came to love them and unfortunately became a snob because if it was under 40 bucks a bottle i mean i could kind of tell i don't really you know i don't really drink the other stuff i just i mean chateau montalena i know them come on you know okay yes anyway so and i went to you'll appreciate this uh, we were invited by Chateau Montalena. Several of the, the sommeliers in town, some food and beverage directors, were invited to a, a Ruth Chris Steakhouse for a special wine tasting with Chateau Montalena. And I thought, gee, they produce rather serious Cabernet Sauvignon. So, um, okay, what do we? Oh my God, Doug! They had the different vintages, and then the different sides of a hill, right? And there were maybe ten bottles lined up. We were going to try. They were all the tall, cylindrical shape that would be a Cabernet Sauvignon or a Saint-Emilion. You know, it was not the fruity Pinot Noirs. There were no French Cote de Bonne. Nope. And I thought, okay, we'll see. And and then they brought out a plate, and it was real simple, but it would be a plate of two lamb chops that were grilled with rosemary, right? Now okay. try 
try this cab. And you're like, well, it's a beautiful wine. Then the second course would come out, I don't know, salmon, whatever, the different protein with this vintage. And you're like, oh, my Lord. You know, just <laughs> incredible. Um, and, and it was so much fun. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you okay. on, on wine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then and then becoming an alcoholic, right? I was like, but I'm yeah. not. I'm not, you see, because I drink fancy wine. I'm not an alcoholic. It's like, okay, okay, sure, right. And then it devolves. But anyway, back to, so I would imagine that your repertoire might be American, European, Spain, Chile. Do you, or do you focus on just varietals or how do you, how do you love your wine? Um, I drink almost exclusively California wines, but uh, I do like um, an Oregon uh, Pinot. Pinot Noir, Uh, come on. There's nothing like it. My favorite, my absolute favorite. Uh, and <clears throat> I, I do like the, the hardy ones, uh, what I call chewy wines. I like the Cabernet Sauvignon, mm-hmm. um, a, a good Cabernet Franc, um, and some of the blends. Uh, I have my uh, son uh, has been involved in studying to be a, a sommelier and has gone through the first two stages already. Awesome. Uh, but he lined up a tasting at Verite. Have you heard of that? Yes. Okay. Yes. Where their their cheapest bottle is four hundred dollars. Crazy. But, yeah. Uh he lined up a tasting just I was the only one there along with the host hostess and the winemaker. Oh my God. And and uh that was quite an experience. Quite yeah. an experience. <laughs> I remember that. But I there theirs are all blends, beautiful blends. Yeah. Beautiful blend. So true or false, Cabernet Franc on its own needs to be very, very good or it's not that good. But if it's a good right. one, it's good. Otherwise, yes. blend it with a yes. Merlot or something. But right. Yes. But a really yes, good Cabernet sure. Franc can be very illuminating. Yes. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I remember. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah. And yeah, mo- mostly I'll, I'll take that with the, uh, uh, the Cabernet Franc is uh, in a blend, but it being the uh, primary uh, mm-hmm. wine in the blend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, do you have a favorite? Um, do, do you do favorites? Uh, I my favorite Cabernet is uh, Heights Martha's Vineyard. Yes. Oh my is god. My favorite. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a real um, good one. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that. Yep. Okay. That's wonderful. Yeah. I don't get to talk to people very much like this about that time, you know, just Pine Ridge, Mm -hmm. all of it, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask, um, well, I want to ask you about the time my friend Conley, producer of our podcast, helped you write a book. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And he said he was young at the time, and um, I'm curious how that went, because my stepfather invited me to help paint an outbuilding, and I think it lasted about an hour before I got kicked off the project. So, Well, Conley and I not only um, wrote this book together, we also did a, a journal article together, and uh, I uh, look back at that journal article as being, um, I, I'm more proud of that cooperation and inner working on that journey 
in which we were comparing my struggle in overcoming my daughter's death and his struggle in overcoming his dad's death. Yeah. And we did that in a journal article. Really? Uh, and in which we were paralleling the experiences. And that was really enlightening for me in doing that. But then the, the book we, we did together was uh, basically on the spiritual tools and beliefs and values in relationship to death and grieving. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was fun doing that. I, what I liked also about doing that with Conley was the fact that my initial books were traditional publishers, and uh, they have so much control over what you write and how you write that I, uh, after those first two books, I did exclusively self-publishing, and uh-huh. the one that Conley and I did together was self-published, in which we're, we're able to have some freedom. <laughs> that, you didn't, that you didn't lose your voice. Right, you yes. Know. Yeah. But even, even with my second book, which was published by Macmillan and in a really top-notch publisher, but they, they changed the title. I, I thought I had a great title, which somebody later took for their book, which ended up selling a lot more than mine. Uh, and they altered so many things. Yeah. But with, with Conley, it was, what do we want to do? Let's do it. Um, if you can speak to this, and, and maybe, maybe if you don't feel like we should go into detail, but very quickly, so my parents were divorced when I was 12. We stayed with my father. My, my mother kind of walked out as a sense of abandonment with all that, and, and staying with my dad, um, he ended up marrying a, a younger woman who, you know, became our stepmother who ended up, we hate, of course we hate our step parents, right? She ended up being a mother to us in ways that I just can't believe she did that work. And then as my mother sort of reentered our lives with her new husband, this stepfather guy, we hated him of course, right? Through some time, my stepfather, Bill, who would take us sailing on his sailboat, gee, that was beautiful. And I was I was still sort of rebellious and acted like I knew everything. So, you know, of course I can pull that line until I got thrown overboard, you know, and you you realize on a sailboat, duck your head because the boom will swing around, you know. But through those years of being on that sailboat and just intrinsically learning, learning by osmosis and feeling the wind shifts and the the nuance of, of my stepdad sailing this boat, which became our boat, which became our family, you know, and by the time I was in college, um, my, at the end of my freshman year, my father died very unexpectedly. My, my father and stepmother had moved to California. I'm on the East coast. And, um, I was a horrible, horrible kid. I was a horrible son to my father through my high school years. And I blamed the divorce on him, which I never should have done. I blamed everything on him, which I, I now, I, I, and there I am in, in college realizing my mother was the alcoholic. My mother caused the drama. Oh my God, my mom, you know, wait, what did dad do again? And I knew that I was, um, I was going out there for Christmas and uh, it would be my first time seeing our home, or my dad's home in California. But then most importantly, I would be able to go out and apologize to my dad and, and be an adult, be a young man and say, and I was really looking forward to being able to say, I'm so sorry you know, mm-hmm. and I love you and I love everything you've done for me. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm covered horror 
on how I treated. And I, I would have these long phone calls on the phone, but I knew, I knew that when I got out there, you know, and two days before that flight, my sister and I in the same dormitory got a phone call at 2.30 in the morning that my father had died unexpectedly. And don't, don't bother coming out. And we'll home, we'll bring the body home. There'll be a funeral. Um, and okay. I was devastated. I thought I was um, a strong young man. And I thought, man, it wrecked me. And I just wasn't prepared for how hard that loss was going to hit me. In the aftermath... Um, my stepdad said, don't worry, I'll pay for the rest of your school. Don't worry, I got you. He had suddenly become sober. He had multiple sclerosis diagnosed, and it changed his life. His veil dropped, the mask came off, mm-hmm. and the real man surfaced, who I became very attracted to and wanted to be around him, and he became like a father to me. Yes. And as his disease progressed, um, I found myself going home or to my mother's and stepfather's home uh, to the point where, you know, as multiple sclerosis does, you know, um, you're immobile, your speech is affected. And uh, my mom and I were the only ones that could really understand him, but he loved it when I cooked. And of course, this is when I was a food and beverage director of hotels and blah, blah, blah. But I would come home and make rather gourmet European and continental meals. Nice. And then And only if I was home, he would have a glass of wine, you know, with his meal. Because I was around, I could help. Again, I I felt extremely privileged to be able to do that. Before all of this had happened, I was still young. He made me take the sailboat out by myself. And that was something I was never, ever going to do. You know, this is a bit, it was big to me. Um, It wasn't really that big. But I was scared shitless. And there I was. I took the boat out. And I was able to do it just fine. But he made me do that. And it was not quite in the moment, but I think that very evening where I'm like, that was cool that he did that. He made me do that out of love. You know? Yeah. And blah, yeah. blah, blah. So his father, who I call my grandfather, who lived in Washington, John Hildreth Forshue, was in the Navy. We called him Captain Forshue. And yeah. my, my listeners have heard stories about how influential he was in my life. So I looked to my stepfather, his daughter, Lynn, who was a big sister to me, her influence, just so, it was so influential. I, I look at step-parents today, and I know you, I already know the answer, but I look at step-parents today and ask, how do you give of yourself in such a way? How, how do you, and of course I know your family just a little bit, you know, to me it's a big deal. Um, it's a big deal. And, 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 and to that point, even uh, uh, today, I'm not a step parent, but I, I mentor young people. You know, I, I want to be an influence on any young person's life I can be. You know, how do you, how do you, where do you put it, Doug? How, how do you feel about, you know, that? And, and how, did, how did you step up to the plate for that? I, um, if I were to put together a, a resume as a, stepfather I, I think the page wouldn't have anything on it um, I don't know if I've I can list positive things that I've done but I, I've kind of followed the I wanted to follow the the Buddhist principle of do no harm and knowing that um, Tara's children have and 
previous relationships uh, with parents, mm -hmm. there's been a lot of harm done. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the best I can do is to just not do any harm. I can't be a father because I'm not a father. I'm a stepfather. Mm -hmm. I can't try to replace somebody that's been before me. I can't do that, but I can make sure that I don't do more harm. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah. that's, as far as the resume, though, it would be just a, a blank sheet of paper. Mm -hmm. I haven't done a sailboat thing or anything like that. But you um, did, but you did. Oh, I don't. The journal with Conley, the book. There's that's a it. little something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, I know my friend, I know my friend Conley, the producer of our show, thrills to literature, knowledge, study, education, I, yeah, think I, I do enjoy talking to Conley about his vast knowledge and uh, us bouncing things back and forth. That I do enjoy. That, that has been, I guess, a contribution mostly in the listening category that I've had, but I've been able to relate to a lot of the stuff that he's talking about. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think that that's my sailing. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, I think <laughs> I, I fully believe it's equally as Im impactful. I believe okay. Okay. my Good. armchair, my, 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 my view from the side, but anyway, so I guess I just want to champion step parents. I want to thank you for being a step parent. Okay. Thank you. As a kid yeah. that had one, had two wonderful yeah. step parents, you know, in addition to my own wonderful parents, I mean, my mother's failings aside, um, there were many, many phenomenal things my mother gave me. So, you know, but, um, yeah, the world of step parents I think is weird. And I think when we're young, we don't want it to work. And then we get older and it's like, damn, yeah. damn, you took time. You know, <laughs> you did this thing. So I don't know. Congratulations okay. for that. All right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank so, uh, I was waiting for you to tell the story about the, yeah, Conley started and then I had to boot him off that project because oh, yeah. <laughs> I got, I got booted off that painting project. I can tell you that. So now, now you teach, do you, do you teach now? Yes. Um, I was doing up until this year, I had been doing, let's see, it was six years at the University of Wisconsin. And now this year, I just started doing it at Northern Michigan University, where we do this uh, grief counseling certificate program. And all the students, it's in through the departments of continuing education at both schools. So all the students are professionals. Uh, social workers, doctors, nurses, counselors. We talk about grief, but I, I always begin going back to what we talked about during the first session. Um, the first two hours uh, I spend talking about being wounded healers. Mm -hmm. And I talk about the importance of being open with our own wounds. And when we are open with our own wounds, not only can we provide healing for others, but we heal in the process as well. In fact, it's hard to tell who's the healer Ourselves. and who's being healed. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I, I set that out uh, and it's, and I do it in a context in which I say that we need to get away from the medical model and get to a psycho spiritual model. And all I do in that first two hours is quote spiritual teachings from all different religions on the importance of 
being real, the importance of being honest, the importance of being empathic. And then we get into tools and techniques. But I say to people, it's in relating to the dying and the grieving, it's more important who you are and how you present yourself to other people. That's more important than the tools and the techniques that you happen to have. It's who you are and how you present yourself to others. Yeah. So we, we teach that and I do it. Uh, I like to, uh, the first two days I have, I do an eight hour presentation each day, mm -hmm. uh, no notes. And I just talk about that principle, how important it is to be wounded healers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That you almost have to be wounded to be a healer. Yes. Oh, in, you in do. Sense, you yeah. have to. <laughs> you can't. You can't relate mm. to someone else's wounds if you've never been wounded. Well, we uh, we have yet again gone a little bit long. Yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> I, I don't want this to end. I I think I think we'll leave it at at the idea that you know, through both of these episodes and all this conversation, I think it might be a good way to end it that you have to you have to celebrate your wounds so that you can be of service to others and yes you know that's a lot about life right there that's doug i can't thank you enough for well, spending you, this time um i really really enjoyed it and and found great inspiration and i would love to talk to you more i i hope maybe i meet you in person you know and, and can visit we'll have a drink you'll have some wine i'll have a diet coke okay we'll sure, visit so sure. uh yeah sounds good Okay, well, okay. thank you very much. All right, thank you. Okay, thank you. see you later. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you for being with us today. If you're interested in more about Well Designed Lives, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, see you next week.